Edward Sree, and welcome to All Things Catholic, where real faith meets real life. Sometimes when you look at the Bible, it could just seem like a whole bunch of different random stories. Have you ever looked at the Bible that way? It just kind of feels like, how does this all fit together? You know, you read about Noah and some ark, you read about David killing Goliath, Moses liberating the people from Egypt in the Exodus, and then Jesus dying on a cross, and you're kind of wondering... How does all this fit together, and what difference does it make for my life today? Well, my friends, there is something I want to share with you today from the beauty of Matthew's gospel, the way Matthew brings all these stories together and shows us so beautifully how all these different stories of the Old Testament come to fulfillment. They reach their climax in Jesus Christ. And I want to continue our conversation from last episode about the beauty of Matthew's gospel here as the church is getting ready in the next liturgical year to focus on the gospel of Matthew. And I want to give you one real key to understanding Matthew's gospel that's going to be really a key to just understanding Jesus better, understanding the Bible better. Are you ready? So the key, the key is probably something that Matthew himself had to face as he was writing his gospel. He would have had one real big challenge that he knew he had to address with his audience, with his readers. You see, many scholars recognize that Matthew is writing to a Jewish community, either uh, a group of Christians from the Jewish background, Jewish Christians, Jews who've converted to Christianity, or uh, alongside them, there's going to be Jews that are sitting on the sidelines wondering about this Christianity, maybe considering becoming Christian or ridiculing the Christians and critiquing the Christians. So whatever the case may be, he's got a Jewish audience, mixed population, Jewish Christians and other Jews there. And he's got one big question to answer. And it's this, how could Jesus Christ really be the Messiah? If Jesus died on a cross, how could he possibly be the great Messiah, Savior of the world? You see, from the Jewish perspective, many Jews were expecting a great Messiah, a, a new son of David, an anointed king to come, but he was going to come and liberate the people from their enemies, just like Moses liberated the people from Pharaoh, and the, and the Maccabees liberated the people from Antiochus Epiphanes, and, and other great heroes liberated the people from their political, military oppressors. So in the mindset of Jews in the first century, many of them are expecting that the fulfillment of the prophecies would, would involve a man, a son of David, a new king, a Messiah, an anointed one that would come and defeat the enemies of their day, the, the Romans, the Pilots of this world, the Herods of this world. And if you look at Jesus Christ, he doesn't seem to fit all that in terms of their expectations. Jesus didn't liberate the people from the Romans. He actually died at the hands of the Romans, a most humiliating, shameful death of crucifixion. You can imagine some of these Jews looking at or imagining the image of a cross and thinking, that's our Savior? That's our Messiah? How could this possibly be? Well, this isn't a, a victorious Messiah king. This was a failed Messiah figure. How could he be the one that fulfills all prophecy? How could he be the one that's our true king? And, and that would be a tall order. That would be tough to address in just one short little book. But Matthew does an awesome job at this. Matthew, as we talked about last week, was a tax collector. He's trained in scribal skills. He, he's trained in detailed note-taking. So uh, out of all the Gospels, he really intentionally structures his Gospel perhaps more, more profoundly than, than any other Gospel. And, and he's intentionally going after this question from beginning to end. And one of the ways he does it is he shows Jesus 
as the fulfillment of various prophecies. He's showing that, say, look, this is look at what the prophet said. Look at what Jesus did. See, he's got to be the one. He's paving the way for them to have greater trust, greater confidence as the story goes on to, to understand this Jesus. And then Matthew will make sense ultimately out of the cross itself. But that's something we'll have to cover in a future podcast. Today, I just want to give you the key so that you can drive Matthew's gospel. You can open up the doors to Matthew's gospel. You can enter into it and see how Matthew interacts with the Old Testament. So, as I've mentioned before, uh, Matthew's gospel, uh, scholars note, has many, many allusions to the Old Testament, over 250 allusions to the Old Testament. But one main way he interacts with the Old Testament is what we could call fulfillment quotations. Uh, fulfillment quotations, 10 times in Matthew's gospel, he explicitly comes right out and tells us that prophecy is being fulfilled. 10 times he does this. I like to call this the biblical prophecy for dummies approach. (laughs) What I mean by that is, you know, if you don't know anything about the Bible, you don't know anything about the Old Testament, you're just a very beginner in, in, in the scriptures. There are 10 times when Matthew's going to make it so easy for us so easy. He's just going to, he's going to, it's as if he's going to just be shouting out as he's telling the story. Hey, wait, everybody pause. Everybody pause. Something really important just happened here. A prophecy was just fulfilled. He's going to kind of just pause his story and shout out to us. Uh, And then he's going to do something really easy for us. He's going to make it really easy for us to make the Old Testament connections because he's just, he's just going to quote the Old Testament prophecy and put it right there in the middle of his story. We don't have to turn any pages. We don't have to guess what prophecy is this a reference to. Where in the Old Testament do I need to find this? I don't have to go back to the Old Testament books. Matthew's going to make it really easy. It's as if he just copy and paste the prophecy and puts it right there in his gospel. Really simple. <laughs> this is, again, I call this the biblical prophecy for dummies approach. So easy. Uh, and Matthew does this 10 times. I want to give you an example of this. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. Matthew says this. Uh, it's the account of St. Joseph, if you remember. Joseph is doubting the Blessed Virgin Mary. And uh, and the story goes that an angel comes and appears to him, says, Take Mary as your child. She's conceived by the Holy Spirit. And and then the, the narrator, Matthew, says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. See, that's one of those times where Matthew's just shouting out, Hey, what just happened here? This wasn't just a random event. This was actually something that was foretold. The fact that Mary would conceive of a child as a virgin, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, that this was actually prophesied in the Old Testament. So it's like Matthew just shouting out, interrupting his narrative to make it really clear, prophecy is coming to fulfillment. (laughs) It's like, do you remember the old TV shows? They go, I interrupt this broadcast to tell you uh, there's an emergency or there's this news announcement we have to make for you. Well, that's what Matthew's doing. I interrupt this narrative to tell you prophecy was just fulfilled. And what prophecy is this? You don't have to guess. You don't have to go back to the Old Testament. You don't have to search on Google. Matthew makes it really easy because he's going to quote the prophecy. Listen to what it says. This is Matthew chapter 1 verses 22 to 23. I'll lead into it again. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes the prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Behold, A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Do you see how this works? So Matthew 
pauses his narrative, makes it really clear prophecy is coming to fulfillment. Then he quotes the prophecy. We get it right there. Matthew does this 10 times. He does it right away in the next story. There's the next story about the Magi coming from the east. They see a star. They're looking for the king. And so they go to to King Herod and says, hey, where's the newborn king? We saw the star in the sky. And King Herod doesn't know what this is all about. So he goes and seeks counsel from the chief priests who know the prophecies. And the chief priests tell him uh, that the, that the, the king... The newborn king was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So in Matthew chapter 2, verse 5, it says in Bethlehem, For so it is written by the prophet. There again, you have the the shouting out of prophecy coming to fulfillment. And then you're going to get a quote from Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5, a quote from the prophecy about how the new king would come from Bethlehem. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a leader who will govern my people Israel. So centuries before Jesus Christ, the prophet Micah foretold that there would be a ruler coming out of Bethlehem, a new king that would come from Bethlehem. And that prophecy is coming to fulfillment. So again, there are many times where we see this happening in Matthew's gospel. Matthew does this approach 10 times. 10 times he gives us these explicit fulfillment quotations. And and, and that's awesome. Isn't it awesome that he does that? He makes it really easy for us. I wish he did it all the time, though. <laughs> I wish that Matthew made it that easy all the time. Uh, that I'm grateful that he does this 10 times, make it really explicit for us, but you need to know that there are probably a couple hundred times when Matthew is just alluding to a story. And he's assuming that we're going to know the background. Uh, it's just kind of like this, you know, if if I said to you, if, you, if we were hungry and we wanted to go eat somewhere and I said to you, hey, how about the Golden Arches? You know I'm not talking about a place that actually has a golden archway. You know, you know I'm talking about McDonald's, right? <laughs> or uh, if I say to you, who won the gold medal? And I say, I sing, oh, Jose, can you see? You know, I, I, I'm not asking about your eyesight right now. I, I'm quoting the opening line of our national anthem. You know this background. You know the, the, the cultural context in which we're living today. Matthew's assuming that you know his cultural context the way his readers would. His, his Jewish readers would understand the, the cultural context of his day. They didn't have fast food chains in first century Judaism. They didn't have the national anthems like we do. They don't have pop culture, Hollywood lines from movies and popular songs like we do today on MTV and uh, on, on iTunes and, and on Netflix. No, no. Their pop culture was different. You know what their pop culture was? It was the Bible. <laughs> that was their pop culture. This is, you may not have owned a, a, a written text. You know, they would have those in the synagogue. But every every Sabbath, you'd go to the synagogue, and that was like the movie you'd hear. That was like the, the song you would hear over and over again. You would hear the stories of Scripture read and talked about. And then in your social life, you would talk about the stories of the heroes of Israel. And then you would reenact the great stories in the various feast days like Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles and Hanukkah were all reenactments of the great story. So this was your pop culture. So Matthew could just make a little allusion and he would assume that you're just going to get the story. So for example, just give you an example. In Matthew chapter 2, Matthew tells the story of those magi coming from the east, 
and they go to the king, the wicked King Herod, and the King Herod wants to use these magi from the east in his wicked plot to harm the baby Jesus. He want, he says, oh, go, go, go find out where the baby is, the, the newborn king, and, and let me know so that I can go worship him too. And we know he's doing that just to figure out where, where the Christ child is born so he could kill the Christ child. Uh, but in the end, do the Magi go along with his plan? Do they go back to him after they find Jesus? No, if you remember, they go home by another way. They don't cooperate with Herod's wicked plot. Uh, now, this whole story about Herod using Magi from the east to try to harm Jesus, but the Magi don't go along with the plan, Every Jew in Matthew's community knows that story. They know that story. That's a remake of an oldie. <laughs> That's a remake of an oldie. They know that song just like I may say Golden Arches to you. <laughs> uh, they, they know that song like I may quote a line from the movie, like The Force Be With You or Luke, I'm Your Father. And you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about Star Wars, right? They know that story. This is the story from the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers chapters 22, 23, and 24, where there's the story of a wicked king named Balak. He's the king of Moab, and he sees the Israelites approaching after they left Egypt in slavery. They're wandering in the desert, and now they're approaching the land, and Balak doesn't like the Israelites. So guess what? He hires a magi from the east, a man named Balaam, who's a magi from the east, to put a curse on the Israelites, to harm the Israelites, but instead of harming them, what happens? Three times, Balak tries, the Magi tries to curse the Israelites, but three times, words of blessing come out. Words of blessing. The, the, the Magi does not cooperate with the wicked king's plan. So that, that this is just a remake of that old story. But most significant is that the third time Balaam tries to curse the Israelites, he actually has a prophecy come out, and it's a prophecy in the book of Numbers, chapter 24, about how one day a king symbolized by a royal scepter will come out of Israel. One day there will be a great king who will come to Israel, and the sign of the king's coming will be a star in the sky, a great star over Israel. That's why the Magi, when they see the star, Go to Israel. There's a connection here. So, again, I don't expect the average Catholic to, to know this today. We don't know the Old Testament like Matthew's community does. But if you want to appreciate Matthew's gospel, you're going to have to be on the lookout for these kinds of for uh, subtle allusions to the Old Testament story. I'm going to give you another one. I'm going to give you another one. See if you can figure this one out. You know, I love the story of St. Joseph. St. Joseph in Matthew's gospel, stands out as someone who uh, was someone that protected the Holy Family in this time of great crisis when Herod was trying to kill the baby Jesus. He sends them to Egypt. Uh, I, I think about how St. Joseph was someone who was known for his purity. He's married to the ever-Virgin Mary. I think about how Joseph in Matthew's gospel is, we're told, he has a father whose name is Jacob. Uh, I think about how Joseph is someone who's known for dreams. You know, he doesn't have any lines. He doesn't say anything, but he, he never gets much sleep in, in the Gospel of Matthew, right? Because every time he goes to sleep, what happens? An angel comes and wakes him up, gives him some vision, you know, or tells him something's happening. You know, you got to get out of here. Herod's trying to kill the child. Go to Egypt. And then after a couple of years, in his, he has another dream in his sleep that uh, it's okay. Come back to the land, but don't go to Judea. Go back home. So he's, all these dreams, he's known for his dreams. Uh, I think all this tells us something 
uh, about Joseph because Matthew is hoping you're catching the illusion. Because all of the readers in Matthew's community, I'm sure they would have picked up on this. They would have said, oh, this sounds like somebody we know. This is, again, another remake of an old story. This sounds like another hero from the Old Testament. Can you think of somebody from the Old Testament named Joseph? Do you remember Joseph with the uh, with the coat and his siblings were jealous and they threw him into slavery and they sold him off to the Egyptians? Do you remember that story of Joseph of the Old Testament? Well, guess what? Joseph of the Old Testament had a father. What was his name? Jacob. Joseph of the New Testament. What's his father's name? Jacob. Joseph of the Old Testament was known for dreams. He had dreams about the future, dreams about what was going to happen, dreams about how he would end up ruling over his family. Uh, so he has all these dreams. Joseph of the New Testament, famous for his gene, dreams. Joseph of the Old Testament was known for his purity. Out of all the people in the Old Testament, in the Jewish tradition, Joseph stands out the most as someone that was heroically willing to guard his purity, no matter what the cost. When he was a slave in Egypt, his his master's wife kept seducing him over and over again, day after day, and Joseph refused, even though she threatened to send him into prison uh, and and say that he tried to rape her. He said, nope, I'm I'm not going to sleep with you. He's even willing to go to prison for his chastity. St. Joseph of the New Testament, also known for his chastity, his purity, married to the Virgin Mary. Uh, St. Joseph of the Old Testament ends up saving his family in the time of famine. He ends up rising up in leadership in Egypt and stores up all the grain and the harvest in a time of great famine. And guess who comes to get food? His father and his brothers, even the brothers who betrayed him. He saves and gives them this grain in a time of great famine. What does Joseph of the New Testament do? He saves his family. He saves his family from Herod's terror by going to Egypt. Do you see all these parallels here? So again, these are just a couple subtle examples of of this. I'll give you one more. I'll just give you one more example here uh, of how Matthew uses the Old Testament to show prophecy coming to fulfillment. Uh, Matthew chapter 3 tells the story of John the Baptist. He tells the story of John the Baptist's clothing. (laughs) It's just fascinating. We learn more in the opening verses of Matthew chapter 3 about John the Baptist's clothing than we do about his message. We learn that John the Baptist was wearing a garment of camel's hair around his, uh, a, a garment of camel's hair and then a leather girdle around his loins. Now, why do we need to know the kind of clothing John the Baptist was wearing? It's because every Jew in Matthew's community would just know that. They would know this that there was a famous hero in the Old Testament scriptures that wore exactly the same thing. And that hero was the great prophet of old, the prophet Elijah. Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1 is just famous. He's known for wearing a garment of camel's hair and a leather girdle around his loin. And we see that John the Baptist is intentionally dressing up like the prophet Elijah. Why is he doing that? Because there's a great prophecy in Malachi chapter 4. It's the last book of the entire Old Testament. Some translations, it's it's chapter 3. But whatever translation you have, the very last couple of verses of the book of Malachi, the last prophet sent to the Old Testament people of Israel, tells us that there's going to be someone who's going to come and prepare the way for the Lord. And this person is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So I want you to think about this. The last prophecy given in the Old Testament 
And, and then there's, there's going to be a couple hundred years of silence from God. No prophets sent from God. The last words are about how God is going to come eventually and rescue his people. And, and the Lord will come to this people. And the person that's going to come prepare the way for the Lord is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's the Malachi prophecy it's from the book of Malachi, that some new Elijah figure is going to come to prepare the way for the Lord. So when you read in Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, that John the Baptist is wearing a garment of camel's hair and a leather girdle around his loin. When you read that, if you're a Jew in the first century, you know that, that, that John the Baptist is dressing like Elijah. That would make you so excited. You say, oh, the prophecy is coming to fulfillment. The new Elijah is here. This John the Baptist must be the new Elijah. And if he's the new Elijah, then that means he's preparing the way for the Lord. The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming to rescue his people. So, my friends, these are just a couple examples of how Matthew, Matthew's gospel uses Old Testament prophecy. Ten times he makes it really easy, quoting the Old Testament prophecy explicitly for us, showing the connection. But then probably a couple hundred times, he's just making many allusions, and he's assuming you as a reader are going to know this because his original audience, these original Jewish Christians or uh, Jews that were thinking about Christianity, their pop culture was the stories of Elijah, of the Old Testament patriarch Joseph. Their stories were the stories of Balak and Balaam in the book of Numbers. Their, the, 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 this is their Netflix that they had in their heads, where were all the great stories of salvation history. So all Matthew needs to do is just make one little allusion, and he knows his audience is going to make the connections. We, unfortunately, need to, be, need to fill our brains a little more with the Bible, a little more with Scripture, a little less with Netflix, a little less with YouTube. Let's take time in our lives to fill our memory with God's words so that when we encounter the Gospels, they'll make more sense to us and they'll come alive for us. So my friends, if you want a book or some resources that can help you unpack these connections and prophecies, I want to recommend a very simple book for you. It's called Mystery of the Kingdom. This is a book I wrote many years ago. It's actually the first book I wrote way back in the year 2001. I think this came out, 2000, 2001. It's called Mystery of the Kingdom. You can get it uh, at Emmaus Road Publishing or it's on my website, edwardsreed.com. If you're looking for a deeper dive into Matthew's Gospel, check out my commentary that I wrote with my good friend Curtis Mitch called The Gospel of Matthew the, uh, from the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture series. Both of these books, you can find links to them on my website and certainly reach out to me with any questions on Matthew's Gospel or anything else about the Catholic faith. You can reach me there, edwardsreed.com. You can reach me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Thank you so much and may God bless you.